0: to see you. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, uh, and I guess it's now safe to say Merry Christmas, uh, although you know we've been celebrating at my house for three weeks. Um, so, some of you, welcome to the party. Uh, we're glad you're here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and meet me in First Peter chapter 4. First uh, Peter chapter 4 is where we're going to spend our time together this morning. We'll jump into our Christmas series next week, uh, but we're going to end First uh, Peter 4 uh, this week. If you are new with us, I just want you to know how grateful we are uh, that you have gathered together to worship with us. Over the last several weeks, we've been walking through... Uh, the letter uh, of first Peter, and so uh, you picked a great week to be here. First Peter chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 12 through 19. As you find your place, I wonder, uh, have you ever had to practice something that you preached? Uh, have you ever had to put into practice something that you've taught or that you've preached? It may surprise you, this happens to me regularly, right, <laughs> where I have to practice uh, something that I have preached. Now there's one situation that sticks out in my mind uh, as a time where I I had to dig down and really really uh, decide that I was going to practice this. It was 2015. Uh, our son hadn't had just been born. He'd been born in August. It was Christmas of 2015. And I was going to start the first week in January preaching through the book of James. Now, if you are familiar with the book of James, then you know uh, that James starts out with uh, this verse. In James 1, 2, he says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so I I' been reading through the Book of James. I'd been reading about the Book of James. I had really just kind of been marinating in this book. And I come home the day after Christmas to find out that our air conditioner, because we lived in Florida, we needed an air conditioner the day after Christmas, you get it, right? Our air conditioner was dead. And it wasn't just broken, like it needed a resurrection. Right? It needed to be completely replaced. Within well, two days later, I, I go out as they're there replacing all of my air conditioning components. I walk out, and, and my truck won't crank. My truck is broken down. And, and then to, to end the year, on New Year's Eve of 2015, uh, our son Haddon, four months old, he goes into the hospital with RSV for four days. And, and as we're walking through that, that week, I have that verse in my mind. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. And if I'm honest with you, my, my first response in that season was not, I am blessed. My, my response in that, that week was not, uh, I'm just considering this all joy. No, my response in that season was why. Why is this happening? Why does this keep, I remember sitting in the emergency room, seeing my four-month-old son, he's hooked up to, to oxygen, and we're, at this point, we're really not even sure what's going on, and just suddenly, like, Lord, what are you doing? Are you in control? Now, I think for many of us, if, if you've walked through seasons of pain, if you've walked through seasons of trial, then you know that feeling. If you've walked with Jesus for any length of time, then you have experienced that. And so here in 1 Peter, where we're at today, Peter's going to speak into that experience. And what he's going to do is he's going to reorient the way that we think about trial. He's going to change the way that we think about suffering and he's going to show us what does the gospel have to say about trials and about suffering. So as we look at this passage here in 1 Peter 4, we see this truth that the gospel changes trials from something we fear to something God uses. The gospel changes trials from something that we fear to something that God uses. So look with me here at First Peter chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to read down to verse 19. Let me invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's perfect and precious word here in 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 12, the Spirit says to us this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is God's word. You can be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, we we are grateful for today. Father, even as we we come off of a week that we have set aside time to be grateful, God, I I pray that that Thanksgiving for Central Church would not just be a day or a week, but it would be a lifestyle. And so, Father, I, I pray that we would be grateful to you today for your grace. God, that we would be grateful to you today for Jesus. And, Father, that we would be grateful for you today for your word. And so, Father, we we pray even now that you would speak to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, the gospel changes trials from something that we fear to something that God uses. And in this passage, we see a few ways that God uses trials. The first one is this, is that God uses trials to bless us with his presence. God uses trials to bless us with his presence. Now, you and I, we we typically do not associate trials with blessing. You just heard me say that when I walked through that week of trial, my thought was not, man, I'm blessed. If you've walked through a trial recently, your first thought was probably not praise the Lord for the pain. No, it was probably a mixed response of what's going on and what's happening and, and trying to believe, and yet here... Peter says that we are blessed when we walk through trials. In fact, he tells us that trials for the believer, that they are not the exception, but they should be expected. That we shouldn't be surprised when trials come on us, but that we should expect them to come into our lives. Now, here in this passage we're looking at this morning, uh, Peter has divided his letter up into several sections, and uh, this passage begins a new section. We we know this from this word, beloved, that he starts it. That's a word that Peter uses several times in his writings uh, to mark new sections. And so uh, we start with this new section, and what he's going to do is he's going to show us how do we suffer, how do we endure trials faithfully as sojourners and strangers in this world? And so look there at verse 12. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Now, it's an interesting word that he chooses to start this section with, isn't it? Beloved. That word literally translated is you who are loved by God. It's almost as if he's anticipating something. It's almost as if he knows what I'm about to say is going to be difficult. What I'm about to say is going to uh, to be hard to swallow. What I'm about to say might cause my readers to question, does God really love them? And as we just sang, God really does love us. And so he starts off by, by reminding them, hey, beloved, you who are loved by God, don't forget that. You are loved by God. Trials don't negate that. Trials don't cancel that out. You were loved by God, so know this. He says trials are not a sign of losing God's love. Instead, they're something that's used by God. Look at what he says here. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Don't don't be surprised at this intense degree of painful experience because this isn't random. The, The pain, the suffering, the trials that... That you walk through, that I walk through, that we walk through, these aren't random, but they are used by God to test us. He says, Don't be surprised when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, Instead of seeing trials as strange, see them as what they really are. They are an opportunity to rejoice in God's work. Verse 13, he says, But rejoice. And so far, as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, he qualifies the sufferings here. He qualifies the trials. He he, he doesn't say, look, just any trial, that means that God is blessing you. Because he's going to go on to say, like, look, if you suffer as a murderer, that's your fault, not God's fault. Right? You made that. But here he says, no, count it all joy, rejoice, whenever you encounter trials... When you suffer, when you share in Christ's sufferings. These are trials, these are sufferings that come because of our allegiance to Jesus. These are trials and these are sufferings that come because we have taken the name of Christian. Because we have said that we follow Jesus before we follow anyone else. He says, no, whenever that happens, here's what you're to do. You're to rejoice and be glad. This is an overflow of joy, not not just kind of simple happiness, but but an overflow of delight. And why is it that you would rejoice and be glad? Because in our sufferings, Christ's glory is being revealed. In our sufferings, we are experiencing more and more and more of Christ's presence in our lives. See, how, how we respond to trials and sufferings is really an indicator of our spiritual health. It tells us, well, do we believe the gospel? Do we believe that God is who he said he is? Do do we believe that he is doing what he said he is doing? Or have we said that I will follow Jesus when life is easy? That trials reveal what's happening in our life. Now, because God can use pain doesn't mean that we should go look for pain. It doesn't mean that we should go look for trials. It doesn't mean that we should go kind of create problems on our own. Like, why are you doing this? Because I want to see God work. That's not not how this works. That's not what Peter is saying here. Instead, he's saying that whenever these trials do come, we need to recognize them for what they are. Trials are not a sign that God doesn't love you. Trials are an opportunity for God to work and for us to experience his presence in fuller and greater and deeper ways. That's what God is doing in our trials. Now, we recognize that that rejoicing in the midst of trial, that this this isn't natural, this doesn't come easy. Well, where does it come from? Well, it comes from remembering that Jesus will return victoriously. This is why he says here in verse 12 that, that his glory is going to be revealed. Right, we can suffer with joy when we remember that Jesus will return. And because Jesus is going to return, he's going to return for us. He's going to return to us. And when he returns to us, then every sad story comes untrue. Every tear is wiped away. All suffering is done. And so we recognize that even as we suffer, even as we walk through trials, trials don't have the final word. Jesus has the final word. Right? God has the final word. So we've got to understand this, that the return of Jesus, we saw this last week, the return of Jesus is not just about something that will happen in the future. The return of Jesus is about right now. That we live in light of his return. We live knowing that his glory will be revealed. We, we live knowing that the return of Jesus has as much to say about our present circumstances as it does about his return later. See, our life may be hard. You may walk through trials and you may walk through suffering because you are following Jesus. But understand this, that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, everything is different. Because Jesus is alive, we have hope. This is why we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Christmas because Jesus is alive. Really, we celebrate Christmas because of Easter, right? we celebrate this Christ child who was born to die for us. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And because Jesus rose from the grave, he has offered that victory to anyone and everyone who will believe. And because Jesus rose from the grave, that if you, if you put your faith, if you put your trust in him, then you will rise as well. And so what that means is you can endure trials you can endure pain. You can endure suffering because what the psalmist said is true, that weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. How do we know that joy comes in the morning? Because Jesus comes in the morning. Or because Jesus is coming. And so in verse 14, he, he teases this out a little bit more. He says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He says, look, if you're, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because you are going to experience and you are going to encounter a fuller and a deeper experience of God's presence in your life. Now, uh, what, what most commentators believe is that the, the trials and the suffering that, that Peter's audience, that they were dealing with, that it was primarily verbal. They hadn't started to experience pain. They hadn't started to experience some of the greater trials that would come. But here in verse 14, he says, if you were insulted for the name of Christ, it leads us to believe that it's verbal. But we might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But what I've learned is like sticks and stones may break my bones, but words hurt a little more, right? There are times where maybe you find out that someone has said something about you and you think, man, I'd rather them punch me in the face than say that. Right? I, I would I would rather them uh, them do anything else than call me a Florida State fan or, or whatever whatever that insult may be. I've got to get it in where I can. Man, it's been a rough season. But what we need to understand is that when you're insulted for the name of Christ, and that, by the way, this is really where we find ourselves in our cultural moment, isn't it? That that we're not. We're not gathering in here this morning wondering, is a terror attack going to take place? Are we going to be arrested because we're gathering to lift up Jesus? Right now, our greatest worry is, is someone going to think something bad about me because I'm a Christian? Or is it going to be awkward if I talk about Jesus with my friends? But what he says here is he says, when all of that happens, know this, that your pride might be stripped away. That's good news because the less of you there is, the more of Jesus you get. Right? The, the less of you there is, the more of Jesus you experience. And so he says, God uses trials to bless us with his presence. Next he says this. He says, God uses trials to change us into his image. God uses trials to change us into his image. Now there's two themes that kind of two emphases that that run through this letter of First Peter. Uh, He stresses first that there's a difference between believers and the world around them, right? This is why we've called this series through First Peter, sojourners and strangers. That's the, the phrase that he uses earlier in the letter. That we we live as sojourners and strangers. One translation says we live as sojourners and pilgrims, right? That there's a difference that this world isn't our home, that we're we're just passing through. But then there's another there's another theme that runs through this, and it's that, that suffering is not a reason to neglect holiness. That suffering is not a reason to, to stop living righteously. And so here in these verses, he's going to bring these two themes together. So look at verse 15. He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. It's almost as if he's He's trying to head off an error that's it's going to be taught here. He, he's, he says that not, understand, not all suffering is a result of living for Christ. And not all suffering leads to blessing. Because sometimes people suffer because of their sin. Right? Sometimes people suffer because of decisions they have made. And he, he goes and he runs through this list. He says, don't suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. These are all things that no one wants to be called, right? We, we don't want to be called murderers. We don't wanna be called thieves. I know an evildoer, right? But we don't we don't wanna be called evildoers. We we don't wanna be called meddlers. What, what what Peter's doing here is he's he's going from the great to the least, right? He's he starts with this great sin where his audience would say, That's not me. I'm not a murderer. I don't have to worry about that. And then he, he says, or a thief. And most of his audience would say, that's, that's not me. I'm, I'm not a thief. And then he says, well, don't even be an evildoer. We wouldn't take that name. And then he says, but don't be a meddler either. Right? D- don't, don't feel like you need to be in the middle of everything. And suddenly, suddenly Peter's audience gets quiet. Right? Because maybe there, there are some among them. And as we've seen in this letter, that typically these list in that that Peter's giving, that these lists, they're they're not to be kind of the the beginning and the end, but instead they're to give us an idea, kind of a flavoring or a sampling of these different sins. And so here he's saying, look, it doesn't matter what the sin is. Whether it's what we see is really bad or if it's something that we see is not that big of a deal. Don't be known for that. When you suffer for that, You're not suffering because you've identified with Christ. You're suffering because you're experiencing the consequences of your sin. He says here in verse 16, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He says, look, if you're going to suffer, let it be for the name of Christ. Now, it's interesting here that he, he uses that title Christian. Because this wasn't a title that the early church came up with. Early believers didn't give themselves the name of Christians. In fact, what this started out as is it started out as a derogatory term. It started out as an insult. Oh, you're one of those Christians. Oh, you're you're a Christian. In fact, every place in the New Testament except for this one, the, the word Christian is used. It's used as an insult. It's not used as a commendation. It's not used as something to to be proud of. No, it's used by by unbelievers castigating and and speaking down, belittling those who have trusted Christ. Peter says, don't let them call you a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Let them call you a Christian. Let, Let them call you, let them identify you as one who is identified with Christ. He says, let them call us Christians, but... But stay away from sin. Fight against these sins. He says, suffering for allegiance to Jesus, it's not a reason to be ashamed. In fact, it's a reason for joy. It's a privilege to be counted with Christ. He says, living like Jesus and being treated like him is ultimately an opportunity to bring him glory. Well, how do we bring God glory as we suffer for Jesus? Well, we When we suffer for the sake of Christ, what we do is we display that Jesus is worthy. When we suffer for the sake of Jesus and we begin to have all of these things ripped away and we begin to experience all of this pain, we show that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worthy. Sam Storms, he says this. He says, the most effective way to demonstrate that God is the preeminent treasure of one's heart is to relentlessly rejoice in him when all other sources of satisfaction are stripped away. What Peter's doing here is he's, in many ways, he's acknowledging the trials they're already walking through, but then he's preparing them for suffering. We've already said that, that his audience, they were probably, the suffering they were experiencing was probably verbal attacks. It was insults, it was things like that. But what we know is that, that pretty quickly they would begin to experience some other forms of persecution. That probably even now what they were starting to experience was financial hardship. That people didn't want to do business with them because they were Christians. They were starting to lose relationships. That people didn't want to be friends with them. They didn't want to be seen with them because they were Christians. That that people didn't didn't want to associate with them. They were losing family relationships because they were Christians. And Peter says, look, in that moment, it's, it's tempting to want to be ashamed. But he says, don't be ashamed, have joy. Because Jesus is worth it. He's worthy. You know, it's, it's easy to say that God is our greatest treasure when life is really good, isn't it? We were in Georgia this week. I, I paid two fifty three dollars for gas at one point, and I said, God is good. <laughs> I praise, praise the Lord. It's easy to say God is good all the time, and all the time God is good when life is easy. It is something completely different to say that when you're in the middle of a trial, when you're in the middle of suffering. Maybe you're familiar with the name Corey Tinboom. Uh, Corey Tinboom was born in the late 1800s. She was born to a family of watchmakers. In fact, her, her father, he would inherit a, a watch shop. That his grandfather had had started in Amsterdam. That's where Corey would spend spend much of her life growing up in in that watchmaker's shop. And then in the late 30s and early 1940s, Hitler rises to power, he he begins to invade different countries, he ultimately invades the city where Corey is, Amsterdam. And her family, the Tinboom family, rather Rather than sitting back and not doing anything, they they started being active and they started hiding Jews in their home. They they started helping to to get Jews out of the country to help them find safety. And eventually they would be found out on February twenty-eighth, nineteen forty-four. Corey along with the rest of her family, they they were arrested for harboring Jews. She would spend ten months in prison and the last several months would be spent in uh, the Ravensbrück concentration camp. And up to this point, she, she and one of her sisters, they had, they had made it through uh, prison. They had made it through the concentration camp together. But then in October, Corey would watch her sister die in the concentration camp. Uh, ultimately, Corey would be freed at the end of December 1944, spending just about 10 months in prison and in the concentration camp. And then in 1945, the, the war would be over, and she would go on to write and to speak about her experiences of, of helping to, to deliver into free Jews and her experiences in the, uh, the concentration camps and in prison. And uh, Corey Tinboom had seen the worst of human depravity. She had seen the most horrific things. She had experienced the most horrific things that that most people will ever experience, more than many will ever experience. And later in her life, she begins writing and talking about the things that she had seen and the, the things that she had experienced. And she said that in the concentration camp, she learned this. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. That kind of conviction only comes from experiencing great trials and being changed by God's great grace. We all want to be able to say that. Every believer wants to be able to say that there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. We, we all want to be able to say with Paul, to live as Christ and to die is gain, and I don't care which one happens to me. Because if I live, I get to, to serve Jesus. If I die, it's a game because I get to go be with Jesus. We all want Corey Ten Boom faith. We all want Apostle Paul theology, but none of us want to suffer the way Corey Ten Boom did. None of us want to suffer the way the Apostle Paul did. But here's what we learn in the Scripture, and here's what we learn through the history of the church, is that great, deep faith is typically accompanied by real, intense pain. That oftentimes, The way that God conforms us into the image of Jesus and the way that God grows us and strengthens us is in times of trial. It's in times of suffering. And what we see here is that that God uses suffering. He he doesn't waste it. But he, he uses it. To make us into what we must be. To make us into what we are not. So we we see in this passage that God uses trials to bless us with his presence and to change us into his image. And then finally we see this, that, that God uses trials to purify us from sin. He uses trials to purify us from our sin. See, through trials, God... It's not only working for us and around us, but He's also, He's working in us. Look at verse 17. He says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. He says that God's working, He's doing something, even in these trials, He's, he's doing something in the household of God. Now, He says it's time for judgment to come. Right? Sometimes things get lost in translation. This, this word judgment that's used here, that it, it really carries with it this idea of purifying, of refining us. That, that God is purifying and he's refining the household of God. That's a term from the Old Testament. He's, he's refining and he's, he's purifying his people as we suffer. He strips away sin and he, he takes away what distracts us. And he, he takes what weighs us down so that we can run the race of faith with freedom. So oftentimes we want to believe that suffering is evidence of God's absence. That if we're suffering, then what that means is that God isn't there. That God isn't around. That God doesn't care. But what we need to understand is that suffering is never a sign of God's absence. Instead, what suffering is, oftentimes, is evidence of God's purifying presence in our lives. That God is working and he's doing something in us and through us in this suffering that he has allowed that he's working, he's he's using it for a purpose. Now, he says this purifying, it's not only for the household of God, but look there at the end of verse 17. He says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, if he's using trials to purify those who have obeyed the gospel, what about those who have not obeyed the gospel? Well, first we need to understand what does it mean to obey the gospel? Obeying the gospel is simply this. It's to set your heart and your mind on the finished work of Christ on the cross. It's to set your heart, to set your mind, to set your affections, to set your faith, to set your attention on what Jesus has done on the cross to save you. And to let that distract you. To let that be where you keep your gaze. Now in verse 18, he's going to restate this question, but he's going to restate the question by quoting from Proverbs eleven thirty one, he says this. He says, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? If the righteous is scarcely saved. What does that mean? Well, it means that salvation is not simple. It's not easy because it costs God his son. That we are saved because Jesus died. We are saved because Jesus came for us. And he says, if it costs that, then how much more will the cost be for those who refuse to believe? He says, it will be unbearable. Now, in verse 19, he brings all of this to a point. He says, therefore, therefore, that word is there to say, look, because of everything that I've said, because of all that you've just heard, here's what you need to know. He says, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He brings up the point, and the point is this. We can endure suffering because God uses it. We can endure suffering because God uses it. In in verse 19, there's two truths that we can hold on to, that we should hold on to in, in seasons of trial and in seasons of suffering. The first is this, is that suffering is not random, but it's used by God. Look at verse 19. He says, therefore, those who suffer according to God's will understand what that means is that sometimes it's God's will for us to suffer because God does his best work in suffering. You might say, well, God would never want me to suffer. Well, God did his greatest work through the suffering of Jesus Christ on the cross. And as Jesus suffered, remember what Peter says here, he says, we, as we are insulted for the name of Christ, we share in Christ's sufferings. And so God is in control of our suffering. And this is good news. This is good news because what this means is that there is nothing in your life that can happen to you that God does not use for your ultimate good. Understand what that means. That there is never a season of trial or suffering in your life that is wasted. That God is using it to accomplish something. Whether it be something whether it be a season of suffering that is relatively small. I shared with you about that week in 2015 where my air conditioner went out and my truck broke down. That was difficult. That was inconvenient. That was expensive. Doesn't even compare to watching my four-month-old on oxygen. Right? So whether that suffering is because your car broke down, or whether that suffering is because a loved one is sick and you don't know what's going to happen, or because you are sick and, and you don't know what's going to happen. God is using every bit of it. He's using all of it to do something in you. There's a second truth. The first one is that suffering isn't random. It's used by God. The second one is this, is that God is not just in control, but he is good. Look what Peter calls him. He says he is a faithful creator. A creator that is full and complete absolute sovereignty. But he is faithful, he is good. My favorite line from the Chronicles of Narnia. So they ask Mr. Beaver about Aslan, they find out he's a lion. They say, Mr. Beaver, is he safe? You remember what Mr. Beaver says? He says, oh, no, Aslan is not safe, but he is good. Our God is good. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't leave us. When we walk through pain and we walk through trials and we walk through suffering, he's using it. He says you can entrust your soul to a faithful creator. That that word entrust, it's literally to trust for safekeeping. That God will keep your soul safe even as you walk through pain, even as you walk through trial, even as you walk through suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Many of you know that I I grew up um, outside of the middle of nowhere, right? Like you had to go to the middle of nowhere to get uh, to where I grew up at. And I loved it. I, I, I I wouldn't change it. One of the things that you could always count on is that once or twice a year, they would start putting out signs on the road that would say, smoke and would say warning, all these things. And what that meant was that it was time for a controlled burn or prescribed fire. And what it is, is the forestry service of others, they would come through and could be on private land or on management areas or state parks, and they'll go through and they will set small fires. And they set these small fires to kill things to kill weeds and to kill thorns and to kill disease. And they, they set these fires to kill those things, but they also do it as a preventative measure. They set these small fires that go through and burn the underbrush to keep really big fires from happening later in the year. And so they they set these fires, and these fires they go through, and they burn things that are alive. right? They burn the weeds, they, they burn the... The thorns, they, they burn out those things that would cause disease, but then also they, they end up burning leaves on the trees that are good. They, they burn the bark. And eventually in a week or so, you'll, you'll drive through, and it's a wasteland. Everything is burnt out. It's black. It's desolate. But then what happens over time is spots of green start to pop up. And it's lush and it's full and it it comes back healthier than it was before. I think sometimes what we perceive as fiery trials in our lives are prescribed burns that the Lord is using in our hearts. That he's coming through and though it's painful, he is removing what if left unchecked will kill us. He's he's cutting out the weeds and the thorns and the disease so that we can abide in Christ and bear good fruit. He's cutting out all of those things so that we can experience more of Jesus. And it's painful, and it's hard, and it's difficult. But in the end, we find out it was worth it. So that's what the gospel does for trials. It, it changes them from something we fear to seeing them as something that God uses. And I shared this with you a few weeks ago, but my, my pastor growing up, he, he would say this and he would say it regularly and it's one of those things that stuck in my mind for years. He would say, we are all either coming into a storm, walking through a storm, or coming out of a storm. It, we all, Every one of us in here, some of us are walking into a storm and we don't know it. Some of us are in the middle of a storm and we can feel it. And some of us are walking out of a storm and we're grateful. But what that means is that we need to be prepared to weather the storm. Now, I'm a native Floridian. Uh, hurricanes, typically, I don't get nervous about uh, Anna and I joke every year that one of these days we're going to start preparing for a hurricane before a hurricane comes, right? if uh, You lived in Florida, then you, you know, right? People start preparing for a hurricane when it's a category three and it's coming to you. What Peter's saying here is he's saying, look, the storm is coming. So we prepare for suffering not once the storm hits. No, we, we prepare for suffering before the storm ever gets close. We prepare for suffering now. And so how do we prepare for trials? How do we prepare for suffering? Well, I'll just ask you this question. What is it that God might need to remove from your life? What what is it? What sin is it? What idol is it? What relationship is it that God may, may need to remove from your life? I'm convinced if you, you, you pray and you, ask, you that prayer and you ask Him, He will answer it. But imagine you know right now what it is that that needs to be removed from your life. Then I would begin praying now that the Lord would remove it. That the Lord, by His grace, would do surgery on your heart and surgery on your life to take it. And then as... As suffering and his trials come, how, how, do we, how do we prepare for that? Well, he showed us in this verse just one phrase. He said that we obey the gospel of God. He said that, that there's punishment coming for those who have not obeyed the gospel. But what about for those of us who have obeyed the gospel? And it's this idea that we keep obeying the gospel. That we keep setting our heart and our mind and our affection on the finished work of Jesus. It's just we, we constantly remind ourselves of the gospel. We, we constantly come back to the gospel. That we, we get a tighter and a tighter hold on, on the gospel. That we, we dig deeper and deeper and deeper into the foundation. We dig a deeper well into the gospel. That then whenever the trial comes, it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it simple. But we know that Jesus is good, and we know that he's there. Now, what if you've never trusted Jesus? What if you've never obeyed the gospel of God? And today is the day. See, Jesus has paid a great price for you to be saved. He has paid a great price that you would obey the gospel of he didn't just live the life you should have lived. He he died the death and took the punishment that you deserved. But he didn't stay in the grave. Three days later, he rose from the grave. When he, he rose from the grave, what he did is he proved he was evidence that God has God had accepted God the Father had accepted his sacrifice. And now anyone and everyone who calls on His name will be saved. And so maybe this morning you're walking through a trial. Maybe this morning you're suffering. Maybe you've come here today because you don't know where else to go. Could it be that God is using that trial, He's using that suffering, He's using that pain to get your attention? Maybe it's to get your attention to save you. Maybe it's to get your attention back on Him. My prayer this morning, as I was driving in, I was praying with some of our deacons this morning, was that all of us, have brought stuff into this room that distract us. Maybe it's something that happened this week. Maybe it's something that you know you have to deal with tomorrow. Maybe it's something happening in your family. Maybe it's just something happening in your heart. And all of, there's any number of things that could distract us. My prayer this morning is that we would be distracted by Jesus. So maybe you're walking through trial. Maybe you're walking through pain. Maybe you're walking through suffering. And maybe the Lord is using that in your life to call your attention back to Jesus. Or maybe he's using it to call your attention to Jesus for the first time. But here's what I'll leave you with. Here's what I would encourage you with. Don't waste the trial. Don't waste the pain. Don't waste the suffering. Ask the Lord, what are you teaching me? What are you doing? What are you accomplishing? Would you just pray with me. Father, we we are grateful for grace today. God, we're grateful for mercy. We're grateful that we have a God who works. We're grateful that we have a God who is active. Father, I pray that we wouldn't forget that. God that we we wouldn't lose sight of that 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 you're good, you're a Faithful Creator, you are good and kind. So, Father, I, I pray for brothers and sisters in here this morning who are walking through pain right now. They're they're suffering, suffering for the the sake of Christ. Maybe they're just suffering. God, I, I pray that they would know your comfort. God, I pray they would know your peace. I I pray they would know the joy in the care that comes with trusting you. And Father, I pray for maybe some friends who are in here this morning who they need to trust you today. God, I pray they wouldn't wait. I pray they would do that even now. Father, I pray they would come to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.